Chapter 7. Navigating Conversations. The opening quote for this chapter is from Lao Tzu. At the heart of your being lies your answer. You know who you are and what you want. By applying what I was learning to the work environment, I found people would spend more quality time with me. Even in conversations that started out shaky, I found by being in a place of acceptance and not misdirection or manipulation, that I was able to offer my observation when others seemed angry, depressed, distracted, or impatient. It was amazing to observe how the simple act of declaring the emotional tone of others in the form of a question and without judgment invited people to tell me all sorts of things. You seem bored, impatient, sad. Is something going on? You sound preoccupied, rushed, or tired. Is this true? Have I called you at a bad time? Have I said something that upset you? Where before a client or candidate might be guarded regarding the details of their job, life, and circumstances, fearful that the information would later be used against them, they suddenly became open. Often I would find myself in discussions with a candidate about an interview that had not gone so well. But when we went through a debrief of the conversation, it became clear that a belief the candidate was harboring about himself had caused him to misinterpret in the same way I had with the VP at Atari. Because of what I was learning about myself, I was able to walk a person through his experience and ask him how he felt at each step. Next, I would validate his experience by sincerely saying an appropriate version of, I understand how you feel, and then ask him what he actually knew for certain had happened. Doing this was nothing short of miraculous, for it evoked immediate change. I was amazed to discover again and again how many beliefs, behaviors, and personality artifacts others had cultivated to become safe, which years later caused them to react to situations that no longer existed. But when I offered my non-judgmental observation about how they were showing up, a kind of freedom and ease was found in becoming aware of their reactive tendencies. From this I was certain I had come upon a major insight. Just as I had become accustomed to wearing my masks, my version of Gary, I did so fearful of being found out to not be the person I was pretending to be, yet at the same time was desperately hoping someone, anyone, would see the real me and free me of my charade. It turns out that I was not alone in this because even if it was only for an instant or the duration of the phone call, others seemed genuinely grateful to discover the behaviors and personality issues of their personas that bound them which previously were invisible to them. Wow, am I really doing that? Is what people would often say after hearing my non-judgmental observations. For many, just hearing me speak out the truth of their situation was experienced as a form of validation that allowed them to relax and feel gratitude for being seen. Many discovered hidden tendencies that were motivated by their need to be seen, validated, and ultimately safe, thus freeing them to better know what they truly wanted. From doing this, an understanding began to emerge that one need only notice, accept, and validate oneself, taking it upon ourself, that which was formerly believed to be another's job. Validation then was revealed as the source of our well-being, making self-validation the ultimate source of our confidence in the world. Clearly, all of this made it easier for me to be myself and do my job, but it would be years before I would understand why people existed in such a state of fear. Along the way, however, I began to develop a theory about what would happen if business conducted itself in a manner that didn't promote it, 
I thought, what's the point of using fear to motivate people in the first place? Wasn't it clear that doing so added stress, compromised health, and diminished creativity, which only served to limit productivity? None of that contributed to the bottom line. So why does the world of business habitually exploit its use? Does no one notice that road rage, violence, crime, drug abuse, homelessness, obesity, cancer, and all manner of diseases are the long-term effects of our practices of fear? Seeing this chain of cause and effect led me to realize that the true product of business and its responsibility to society should be uplifting the quality of life of the individuals in the workplace. So rather than compel workers to produce products designed to improve the quality of life for consumers alone, they should first uplift the quality of life for those in their employment. As a recruiter who engaged in hundreds of thousands of conversations in an endlessly hostile environment, This insight provided a great place for me to begin to repair the damage I endured from the fear that participated in my upbringing. At the same time, it also shone some much-needed light on the lives of others. As a teaching aid and a way to test my theories, I would often sit with one or more co-workers to share what I was learning in the recruiting environment. I would ask the recruiter's point of view of a search, the client, and potential candidates, and allow them to listen in on my real-time conversations. What I was attempting to show was how relaxing into the content of one's experience revealed a guidance that was far more effective than developing strategies and employing tactics. This is because recruiters expend a lot of energy developing strategies they believe would deliver them to their desired outcome. Normally, this meant the recruiter would have a list of pre-selected phrases to be used in conversations at a particular point, time, and in order, which had proved useful in the past. Then during the conversation, the recruiter would inject those statements into the dialogue, hoping to navigate the conversation in a particular direction. But what usually happened was the rehearsed phrases would fall short or sound hollow, which they were, because they were not authentic to the situation in which they were being used. It was because of this that I encouraged others to allow conversations to evolve naturally by simply stating who they were and what they wanted. I explained that this would allow them to remain open to being directed in completely unexpected directions that, while appearing to have no connection with the outcome sought, were actually points of navigation to the best possible ones. It was not until I had practiced this for several years that I understood that what we call communication is actually a navigation procedure, just like the global positioning systems found in our planes, trains, and automobiles. In the same way that GPS requires we triangulate points of reference before heading for our goal, we must know where we are, the location of our destination, and the path in between. As a human being, this is inherent in our communications process, in the activity of speaking referentially and tangentially. Even in saying yes or no or I don't know, the process continues. But most importantly, it is our fear of not knowing where to go next in the conversation That causes us to freak out when discussions appear to move away from what we think will deliver us to our goal or make us safe. Make no mistake, it is only our fear that is responsible for shutting down our personal guidance positioning system. For this reason, we feel confused or prodded into taking refuge in a behavior we have used successfully in the past, which only hinders our ability to accept our I don't know for what it is, a course correction. When this happens, our fear of being lost makes it increasingly uncomfortable for us in our current predicament. Fortunately, the solution is simple. All we need to do is ask ourselves, what am I feeling now? 
What do I know to be true? What do I feel to do next? Our answer to this will reveal what we do know now as our starting point for the next moment. Sometimes this inquiry will reveal we still don't know what to say or do, but if we remain open and honest about it, we will always arrive at what we need to know next. Sometimes we will feel committed to achieving the goal we originally had in mind, thereby making what just occurred simply a point of navigation and not a point of termination. Other times, we will notice the feeling to proceed along the path we originally embarked is no longer present. At such times, the authentic choice was to accept that and feel into what to do next. So if I felt lost, I would name it. I'm lost, I would say. I'm feeling uncertain about what you have just said, or did what I say offend you? You seem frustrated, or I don't understand why you took the conversation in that direction, or I don't know where to take the conversation next. In all honesty, all that I did was validate the content of my experience, knowing that it was true because it had already happened, and then figure out a way to share some part of it with others. If the experience had not already taken place, it would not have occurred to me, and who was I kidding, conducting myself as if this wasn't so. And yet, when we speak from the strength of what we know to be true, and this is a very great secret that it behooves us to remember, it carries with it a sense of power that is the true beginning of authenticity. Wouldn't it be great if we could feel into the content of our experience and have it correctly direct us where we want it to go? Well, we can, and it does. Regardless of how well this is working for me, most of my coworkers did not like the instruction to speak from the truth of what they were feeling for a couple of reasons. Having spent years hiding what they were really feeling, most were unconnected with it and therefore unaware of how much fear, doubt, guilt, and anger was already operating in their experience. And since their habit of being safe created the need to hide their emotions from themselves, it certainly wasn't something they wanted others to know about, especially in the world of business. Because of this, most did not believe their feelings of fear, doubt, and guilt were relevant and certainly not something they wanted to reveal to others, especially their client. They thought logic was the best way to navigate towards the goals they sought. In response to their objections, I would attempt to show how every choice they made was already based on feeling, no matter how logical they might think they were. To make my point, I would ask them to compare two or more courses of action they might pursue in a given situation. Next, I would ask them to tell me the difference between those choices and how they knew they were different. Most could easily articulate the difference in their choices, but when I asked them how they could discern which was most appropriate for the situations in which they found themselves, all had to agree that they felt better about one than another. An honest examination of what was actually participating in their process always revealed feeling to be responsible for their ability to notice the difference, just as it was through feeling they were able to register whether a strategy was working or not. Moreover, if feelings were of no importance, as many believe, why would any of us feel anything about the outcomes we achieved? But since we do, if we pay attention, we will find that what we feel is what is guiding us. This is our GPS, which we can learn to use with complete confidence to navigate our life. In spite of my efforts to share the magic of this process with my coworkers, none could readily embrace it because they thought they had no need, caught in the belief that verbal pinball was necessary to corral clients into making money for them. So instead of becoming vulnerable by exposing what they were really about and what they were feeling, each would take refuge in every manner of deceit and distraction to get what they wanted. Because of this, no one seemed willing to understand what I was talking about, though all agreed I had a unique skill in navigating a recruiting dialogue. 
but none could accept the obvious fact that the flow of conversation and exchange of ideas which arose in relation to the person with whom they were speaking had a course and life of its own. If they had been willing to observe and follow that path, it would have led them through vulnerability to a more viable communications process that intimately revealed their connection to everything else. It was from encountering the unwillingness of others to be guided by the content of their experience that I concluded most of us suffered from an intrinsic conflict between the truth of experience and our beliefs about ourselves. It didn't seem to matter whether one was at work, the gym, on vacation, social gathering, grocery store, or library. Everyone practiced behaviors and personality artifacts that perpetuated an irresolvable conflict between the content of their experience and the situation that gave rise to it, making life a very stressful proposition. For whenever our life is composed of two conflicting fields of experience, what is truly occurring and what one believes should occur, only fear or one of its progeny as anger, greed, jealousy, rage, sadness, hopelessness, or depression is the likely response. Clearly, I knew this well, for I had lived in a constant state of fear, being trapped between my two seemingly irreconcilable realities since the age of 17. So I looked to see what was at work in myself, hoping to understand what was at work in everyone else. What I continued to find at the core of my conflict was the belief that I could not be who I was and have what I wanted. This was why I had previously distrusted and dismissed the validity of my feelings regarding their ability to guide me to the outcomes I sought. It made me doubt when to speak, what to say, to whom, and how to behave. It made me second-guess all of it and constantly look over my shoulder for feedback to tell me I was not appropriate and therefore unsafe. To compensate for this, another belief had taken its place that demanded I must become someone else in order to have what I want. But I didn't know who to become or how to arrive there which made the opinions of others my only guide to that other person. Looking back over my life, I could see how this operated unconsciously in my search for authority figures to tell me who I should be. First it was my parents and elders, later it was my peers and teachers, and after my experience on the bus, it was expounders of the spiritual wisdom I explored. But even though I looked to others to tell me who I should be, even as I constantly traded up my ideas about what that person looked like, I neither became that person nor arrived at what I wanted. If I had, I would know it, for I would finally feel safe, and certainly I did not. It was in the face of this that I wondered why it had not worked. Why did I feel afraid all of the time?